Hey there, and welcome to episode 41. I'm your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners, a podcast that's here to bring you all things movie-related, past, present, and future. We're in the second half of February now, which is unbelievable, if you ask me, seeing as how we just turned the calendar all of, what, four minutes ago? But wherever you are, hey, here's to good weather, good health, and good movies. And speaking of movies, that's why you clicked on that little triangle that points to the right to begin listening, which I thank you for. This is the seventh in a run of Academy Award flashback episodes, all aiming to build momentum and excitement for the upcoming Oscars, which are going to be broadcast live on Sunday, the 27th of March. We have 10 Best Picture nominees this year, but to be candid, as of this recording, I've only seen a few of them, so I have some serious catching up to do over the next month and a half if I hope to maintain any kind of credibility here as a movie podcaster. I've seen three of them at this point, Don't Look Up, Dune, and Licorice Pizza. But let's save a rundown on this year's nominees until I've seen more and Oscar night comes a little bit closer. Let's not play the Oscar hand that we were dealt to soon. For now, let's just keep doing what we've been doing and look back at Oscar films from the past 35 or so years. We began with 1976 and that year's Best Picture champ, Rocky. And that brings us now to 2001, which we actually did begin last time with an episode with a special focus on Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, a Best Picture nominee that year. I was joined by Davey A. from the podcast I'd Give That 10 Minutes, and we had a great time finding out Rena Hobbits and visiting Middle-Earth, but now it's time to look at the 2001 Best Picture winner, A Beautiful Mind. And which of its co-nominated films will you also hear about? Good question. If you've listened to this show before, then you may remember that there's always a weekly poll on my socials leading up to the release of each episode. With this Oscar series, the poll's been asking, which Best Picture nominee do you want to hear about most in addition to the winner? Once award season is in the rearview mirror, then the polls will go back to more of a variety of different questions for you. But for now, the content, or should I say half the content, of each Oscar-themed episode is in your hands. This time around, you have the choice of Moulin Rouge, Gosford Pack, and In the Bedroom, the three remaining nominees after Beautiful Mind and Fellowship of the Rings. You made your voices heard, and the voting results show that the most love was thrown at Moulin Rouge. And if 20 years to you is a lifetime ago, or if you're saying to yourself, you know, I never saw this one, or that one, why bother now? Then before you say to yourself, damn, old movies, no! then respect to you, but could I suggest to you the words of actress Lauren Bacall? It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. And that said, we'll follow the same format as we have been. Spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both A Beautiful Mind and Moulin Rouge. Then the spoiler alert, as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both. And as I've been doing, in the interest of pleasing everybody, you'll get a bonus fun fact for each of the other Best Picture nominees. Then the segment, The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous, one or two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. The trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And finally, the big finish, with a preview of the next episode, which catapults us into 2006. I'll give you more info towards the end of today's episode about what's planned for a look at the 2006 Best Picture champ, The Departed. And then we exchange not goodbyes, but until next times, as we ride off into the podcasting sunset like a John Ford Weston. So rewind 20 years back to early 2002 as the 01 Oscar season began to heat up. The telecast that year was March 24th, the same month when, in Spain, the peseta was discontinued as official currency and replaced with the euro. In other words, let's jump now to the spoiler-free plot setups. We begin with A Beautiful Mind, a 2001 biopic about the Nobel Prize-winning mathematician John Nash, played by Russell Crowe. I want you all to know now that I am not the sharpest cheese in the cracker when it comes to math. It just does not come easily to me. 
quiz days caused me more nosebleeds and panic attacks than I can count back when I was in school. So to anyone who does not find it at all that difficult, show me how it's done. Anyway, Russell Crowe plays mathematician John Nash in an Oscar-nominated performance and his experiences with mental illness, specifically what was then called schizophrenia. It's set in Massachusetts and New Jersey, features Ed Harris, Christopher Plummer, Paul Bettany, and Jennifer Connelly in her Oscar-winning role as the woman who goes from being a former student of his to his eventual wife. The Best Director Oscar went to Ron Howard, who had just made the Jim Carrey version of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. He would go on to do the Star Wars spinoff Solo. And the Best Adapted Screenplay Award went to Akiva Goldsman, who based it on the biography written by Sylvia Nasa. I'm going to say right out of the gate that the parallels between A Beautiful Mind and 2014's The Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley are about as subtle as a train wreck. Don't get me wrong. I honestly do think that both are great stories, they're both about real fascinating people, both set in the mid-20th century, both throw a spotlight on a man whose mind works differently from the norm, and as a result is a social outcast, his lack of social skills, his inability to read a room. Both men, at least in their movies, they meet and become involved with a, a very patient woman who gets them better than most. Both films have good musical scores, great acting, Fairly formulaic writing, but as I've said before, you can't take years worth of someone's life and compress it into a two-hour film without some consolidation, some creative liberties, and in some cases, even some awkwardly placed expository dialogue that fills in the gaps for the audience. If you want the full, unabridged, non-glamorized treatment, maybe a book or a documentary. But if you want engaging, passionately fictionalized for dramatic purposes, well-intentioned, well-made films that tap into your emotions on a more visceral level... Turn to a beautiful mind. As our story begins, we hear the operatic voice of then-singing sensation Charlotte Church playing over the Universal Studios, and then the DreamWorks, and then the Imagine Films logos. And by the time we get through all of that, the song is like 80% over. <laughs> a title card against a black screen lets us know that we're beginning at Princeton University, September 1947. We get not a fade-in, but a quick cut to a classroom, with a professor standing in front of the room extolling the virtues of mathematics. And if you listen closely enough, you'll see that he's played by Judd Hirsch, he of the sitcom Taxi, films like Ordinary People, Running on Empty with River Phoenix, and Independence Day. He says, Mathematicians won the war. Mathematicians broke the Japanese codes and built the A-bomb. Mathematicians, like you. Cut to a shot of the students gazing intently at this guy, with the exception of one in particular. Sort of a loner. He's sitting at the back of the room wearing a bow tie and jacket, hands folded, looking down. Rather clean-cut looking. You guessed it. This is our protagonist, mathematician John Forbes Nash Jr., played, as I said, by Russell Crowe. The professor goes on to say, The stated goal of the Soviets is global communism. In medicine or economics, in technology or space, battle lines are being drawn. To triumph, we need results. Publishable, applicable results. Now who among you will be the next Morse? The next Einstein, who among you will be the vanguard of democracy, freedom, and discovery? Today, we bequeath America's future into your able hands. Welcome to Princeton, gentlemen. And with those rousing words, the camera zooms in slowly on Nash's face as he looks overwhelmed, maybe a little nervous, excited, eager for his future that's about to begin, all while wearing that bow tie. Next, we see him standing outside at a reception or orientation gathering, all by his onesies, 
And he's staring at the table that's got lemon slices, a punch bowl, empty drinking glasses, things like that. He examines each of them intently, picks one of the glasses up. He's looking at the reflection of the sunlight coming off it. He's looking at the lemon slices. And in his mind, he's picturing these imaginary lines that connect all of these things. And he follows these lines all the way up and then zeroes in on the pattern of the necktie that one of two guys standing in front of him is wearing. Now, the two guys, they're in the middle of having their own conversation. And Nash interjects with one fine, how do you do? He says, there could be a mathematical explanation for how bad your tie is, which is probably from the chapter called Don't Let This Happen to You from How to Make Friends and Influence People. The guy says, thank you. Awkwardly, he and his friend, they both chuckle. Introductions are made. The second guy, the one wearing the tie that apparently does not offend, is played by Anthony Rapp, known for the Broadway and film version of the rock musical Rent, which was written and directed by Jonathan Lassen, who's currently played by Oscar nominee Andrew Garfield in Tick, Tick, Boom. A little connection to this year's crop of Oscar hopefuls there for you. But when all is said and done, four guys in total are making his acquaintance, including one named Hanson, who mistakes Nash for a waiter. Once Hanson realizes that Nash is not a waiter, he gets all diplomatic and shovels him some shit and calls it sugar, saying with a big smile on his face, Oh, honest mistake. Nash gives it right back to him in his bumbling, straight-from-the-hip, non-confrontational way, saying, I imagine you're getting quite used to miscalculation. I read your stuff on Nazi ciphers and nonlinear equations, and I'm supremely confident that there is not a single seminal or innovative idea in either one of them. Enjoy your punch. And he walks off leaving the other four to chuckle with each other, and in their banter, they fill us, the audience, chock-full of expository dialogue. Gentlemen, meet John Nash, the mysterious West Virginia genius, the other winner of the Distinguished Carnegie Scholarship. So in those two lines, we get his full name, first and last, the state he's from, the fact that he's a genius, as well as a co-winner of a scholarship to Princeton, all in four seconds' worth of snippets of dialogue. That, my friends, is the magic of the movies. I guess it's how to do it if you're telling a story of a real person and want to keep the running time at a reasonable length. And then Charlotte Church is back in the soundtrack, yodeling away as Nash sets up his desk in his dorm room, looks out the window at other young men walking around outside, when he hears a noise, turns around, and sees a man holding a suitcase. Wearing an unbuttoned, untucked white shirt, undone necktie, he comes staggering in, announcing, The prodigal roommate arrives. He introduces himself as Charles Herman, as Nash looks at him, kind of confused. Herman confesses to having a hangover. Nash was not expecting a roommate, but they shake hands, and Herman's off to take a shower to sober up. Next thing we see is Nash all caught up in thought and writing a complicated mathematical equation on the window with a piece of white chalk. Herman comes back into the room, freshly washed up, ready to make conversation. Nash tells him, I'm only here to work. Next to him on the desk is a tin box filled with cookies, muffins, or something like that. Herman reaches for one, but Nash shuts the lid before he has a chance to grab one. Herman then leapfrogs onto Nash's desk, looks him straight in the eye, and says, Is my roommate a dick? Herman pulls out a flask and suggests they break the ice. Cut to the two of them outdoors drinking, and Nash letting his guard down a little. Herman suggests he's better with integers than with people, and Nash responds, Well, my first grade teacher did tell me that I was born with two helpings of brain, but only half a helping of hat. He says he doesn't like people much, and the feeling is pretty mutual. Nash commiserates with Herman back in their dorm room, saying that Hansen just published another paper, but he's having trouble coming up with a topic for his own doctorate. It's a competition for him, it looks like. Herman sarcastically tells him, hey, at least you've invented window at with the equations you draw all over them, and Nash explains them. One is a group of football players, another is a cluster of pigeons fighting over breadcrumbs, and a woman chasing a man who stole her purse. Herman looks at him incredulously and says, you watched a mugging? That's weird. 
and the best that Nash can come up with is, in competitive behavior, someone always loses. So that gives us a glimpse inside the way that he lives his daily life, always studying, always thinking, synthesizing information, processing it, despite how his behavior makes him look to outsiders. Herman tells him, hey, let's go get some pizza and some beer, and Nash is off. So he's in a pool room, Herman's watching from a distance, when who walks in but our four friends? Hanson, the published paper writer, the guy from Rent, the one with the offensive necktie, and the fourth one. They greet him. They do give off the vibe that they're amused by him, but can't help but like him. They toss back a few, they give a few ladies at the bar a couple of glances. As far as picking up girls goes, Nash holds his pool cue and tells the Fab Four that his odds of success dramatically improve with each attempt. He goes up to one woman as Glenn Miller's Moonlight Serenade begins to play. He sits next to her, and after a few painful seconds of just staring at each other, she throws him a bone and says, Maybe you want to buy me a drink? He leans forward confidentially and says, I don't know exactly what I'm required to say in order for you to have intercourse with me, but could we assume that I said all that? Could we just go straight to the sex? She's not exactly swept off her feet and slaps him soundly across the face as she stomps out, so someone is sleeping alone tonight. Things aren't going much better for him academically as he continues to scribble away on the glass of his window but faces verbal rejection from his professor, who tells him that his record does not warrant really any placement at all that all of the other students have published. Nash is feeling pretty worthless, completely unaccomplished, and in a fit of despair, he bangs his head against the window. Before long, his roommate Herman shoves his desk through the window and onto the ground below to the shock of the passersby below. Nash and Herman are both laughing as they fall to the ground under the window, and he's having a few moments of loosening up and cutting loose and, again, letting his guy down a little bit more, however momentarily. Back in the pool room, he's sitting once again with the Fab Four as they go back and forth about their chances of scoring with a blonde woman they have their eyes on. He studies the situation carefully, and in what is, admittedly, a fascinating way of visually depicting his thought process, he verbalizes these complicated theories of probability if they take one approach or another in an attempt to woo her. Inspiration hits, he runs out, we get Charlotte Church wobbling away at another piece of music, to a montage of Nash scribbling furiously at his new mathematical theories before bringing them to Hellinger, Judd Hirsch, you know, Taxi and Independence Day. So Nash is sitting there when he notices Herman poking his head in through the open office door, sneaking a glance to see how it's all going. Then Independence Day looks up and gives this feedback. This flies in the face of 150 years of economic theory, rather presumptuous. But... Independence Day gives him his blessing and says he's confident that Nash will get any placement he wants with a breakthrough of this magnitude. Herman excitedly does a happy little jig in the hallway, and here they're like, aw, friends. But flag in the play as we stop there at the 25-minute mark and pivot from Nash's beautiful mind to director Baz Luhrmann's inexplicable one as we set our sights on Moulin Rouge, an original music that's pot drama, hot romance, and 100% mind f Screening first at the Cannes Film Festival in May 2001, and then premiering in Australia and New Zealand by the end of that month. Before reaching Canadian and U.S. audiences that June, Moulin Rouge, directed by Australian filmmaker Baz Luhrmann, who had already done 1992's Strictly Ballroom and 96's Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. He and childhood friend Craig Pierce co-wrote the screenplay. He was nominated for eight Academy Awards, Best Picture, Leading Actress for Nicole Kidman, cinematography, editing, makeup, and sound, and won two of them, costume design and art direction, a category they now call production design. 
Before anything else is said about Moulin Rouge, it might help you to know that the story is based on both the Greek myth of Orpheus and the opera La Traviata, something I was completely unaware of when I first saw it. By the time the last frame flickered off the screen, I had been subdued into stunned and astonished catatonia. But after finding out that it was based on pre-existing material and wasn't just the brainchild of some LSD-induced clusterfuck of a mind warp, somehow made it a little less indigestible. A little. The movie begins with the sounds of an orchestra tuning up, followed by a small helping of audience applause. Fade in to a red curtain. Rouge, you may say. A long, wide shot of a proscenium makes its appearance known along with the small figure of a man in silhouette at the bottom of the frame with his arms raised above his head. The familiar sounds of the 20th Century Fox logo burst into song as the little silhouette of the man does the fandango or some such dance. I don't know what the hell he's doing, to be honest, other than he's conducting this unseen orchestra and gesticulating wildly like some microscopic thrashing machine. After 20th Century Fox does its thing, we then have the opening chords to The Sound of Music. Yeah, that one. The one where Julie Andrews dresses seven kids up in old curtains and gets them to sing about jam and bread and tea for their father who blows whistles at them all day long with a pole up his ass. The title card fades in to tell us that we're in Paris in the year 1900. There's a brief image of some guy singing by a windmill, the titular windmill, presumably. Moulin Rouge translates to Red Windmill. There was apparently a fake windmill on top of the real-life nightclub in Paris that the story is based on. So this guy sings the following. There was a boy... A very strange, enchanted boy. They say he wandered very, very far. Dissolve to black and white images of Paris, the Eiffel Tower, then zoom in to a specific area of the city, the area where the Moulin Rouge is located. There's a flurry of different fleeting characters, including a priest who looks straight into the camera to warn us, turn away from this village of sin, as well as a rough-looking prostitute who makes Bette Midler and Hocus Pocus look like Audrey Hepburn. We keep zooming in before settling in on a distraught, drunken young man, Christian, played by Ewan McGregor of Star Wars fame, alone in his apartment, sitting at his typewriter, looking at it, as the faux Don Quixote back at his windmill sings, The greatest thing is just to love and be loved in return. Now, Obi-Wan has said in one of the DVD featurettes that what this film is about, what it all comes down to, is love. And his character Christian's voiceover narration pretty much drives that point home. The Moulin Rouge, a nightclub, a dance hall ruled over by Harold Zidler, played by Jim Broadbent, Kingdom of Nighttime Pleasures. Obi-Wan goes on to refer to Creatures of the Underworld, and the most beautiful is the one that I loved, Satine. As soon as he says this, there's a dissolve to Nicole Kidman as Satine, almost entirely engulfed in shadows, holding a cigarette lighter done up Moulin Rouge style. He calls her... A courtesan. She sold her love to men. They called her the Spackling Diamond, and she was a star of the Moulin Rouge. The woman I loved is dead. Nothing like giving it away right at the very beginning, huh? I first came to Paris one year ago. It was 1899, the summer of love. I knew nothing of the Moulin Rouge, of Harold Zedla, or of Satine. It was the Bohemian Revolution, and I arrived from London to be part of it. It was the center of the Bohemian world. Painters, writers... They were known as the children of the revolution. I had come to live a penniless existence, to write about truth and beauty and freedom and what I believe in of all things, love. There was only one problem. I had never been in love. Luckily, right at that moment, an unconscious Argentinian fell through my roof. He was quickly joined by a dwarf dressed as a nun. 
If you're saying now... Say what? You're not alone. Turns out that a small company of actors lives directly above him. The dwarf, as Christian calls him, is played by John Leguizamo. They were rehearsing upstairs, and for whatever reason, the Argentinian fell through the roof and directly into his place. The dwarf dresses a nun, comes running in through the door, they all meet each other, and Christian finds himself in a matter of minutes joining them in their theatrics upstairs for a little bit of artistic expression. They're all going back and forth about possible lyrics for the song that they're trying to write. Christian comes up with inspiration. The hills are alive with the sound of music. Turns out those lyrics are some of their favorite things. They go for it and decide to bring it to the Moulin Rouge to see if they can convince the folks there to invest in their show. So we pivot to the interior of the Moulin Rouge, where everyone is bopping along to a strange rendition of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then, here it comes, the moment you've been waiting for. A scantily clad Nicole Kidman as Sateen descends from the ceiling on some big-ass swing wearing spackly things while singing a medley of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and Madonna's Material Girl. And if Madonna's little ditty is not enough of an 80s throwback for you, try this one on for size. The ensemble of Moulin Rouge singing and dancing to DeBage's Rhythm of the Night. I know a place where we can dance the whole night away, and it's called the Moulin Rouge. Yes, they rewrote the lyrics. You may have figured out by now that most of the soundtrack of this film is composed of pre-existing songs, which is an odd but weirdly catchy artistic decision by Baz Luhrmann. I also want to call your attention to the swing that Satine is on. A year after this film came out, the Muppets did a TV Christmas special called It's a Very Merry Muppet Christmas. It pales in comparison to the Muppet Christmas Carol with Michael Caine, but that's beside the point. As they are wont to do, the Muppets are trying to put on a show, and Fozzie introduces Miss Piggy as Saltine in Moulin Scrooge. And I will say this. If the sight of a sexy pig called Saltine, crooning, come and get me, boys, while a bunch of Muppet chickens nonsensically cluck their way through the real film song Lady Marmalade, if that doesn't at least make you chuckle, then can we still be friends? Though to be candid, if you look at the Lady Marmalade video on YouTube and the headgear that some of them have on, you might agree that the Muppet chickens actually did it better. And I want to give a shout-out to Ed R. and Mary D.W., for both voting on my socials for Miss Piggy as the one who pulled it off over Nicole Kidman. Always appreciate the interaction. Thank you both. So there's Nicole Kidman as Saltine. Oh, God. No, she's not Saltine. There's Nicole Kidman as Sateen, singing and swinging and everything when she suddenly gasps, falls off the swing, is caught, and carried off as she's coughing blood into a handkerchief. Through a series of unfolding events that I'm not going to get into, Harold Zidlow wants her to sleep with a potential investor she mistakes Christian for that investor, Christian thinks that she's interested in the show that he and the Argentinian and the Dwarf Nun and their friends put together, and before we know it, they're alone in one of the rooms where she takes the clientele. There's a bunch of over-the-top bonk and boing sound effects straight out of America's Funniest Home Videos, and they sing a medley of pre-existing love songs declaring their passion for each other, despite knowing each other for all of two seconds. But to be fair, Tony and Maria from West Side Story only knew each other for one second, so it's all good. As for this love medley that Christian and Satine sing together, how's this for a playlist? Elton John's Your Song, David Bowie's Heroes, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes' Don't Leave Me This Way, I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss, One More Night by Phil Collins, Silly Love Songs by Wings, U2's In the Name of Love, Up Where We Belong from the movie An Officer and a Gentleman, All You Need Is Love by The Beatles, and Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. Wide and varied these songs are, but getting the rights must have taken up half the budget. 
Nicole Kidman is pretty good with singing, but <laughs> Ewan McGregor, uh, he makes a great Jedi Knight. He's attractive in the role. He's got charm, he's got charisma, but sweet Jesus, he cannot carry a musical note in a fireproof lockbox. Look, I'm not saying that I have the greatest vocal range myself, but I'm also not starring in Moulin Rouge. Let's forge ahead to the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including plot spoilers and the endings, are going to come fast and furious, so spoiler alert now. Let's take care of a beautiful mind first. Number five. The scene where John Nash contemplates drinking tea? That's based on the moment when Russell Crowe met the real John Nash. Fifteen minutes were spent deciding between tea and coffee. Number four. In real life, Nash had an affair with a Bostonarian nurse named Eleanor. In 1953, when Nash was 25, Eleanor gave birth to their son, John David. Now, this is not the infant depicted in the film, but in real life, both of his sons have the same first name of John. Nash was single when Eleanor gave birth to John David, but even so, he was unwilling to care for either one of them, and John David ended up going into foster care for a while. By 1959, when John David was six, Nash had been seeing him on occasion, but contact was cut off and they did not communicate again until John David's senior year of high school. And that was only by letter. Six years after that, they finally met in person. Nash was still ill at the time, and according to biographer Sylvia Nasser, Nash wrote in a letter to a friend that he thought his son would play, quote, an essential and significant personal role in my personal long-awaited gay liberation, end quote. John David told NASA that the reunion, quote, petered out, end quote, and that, quote, having a mentally ill father was rather disturbing, end quote. After 17 more years without contact, they met up again. This time, Nash criticized John David's decision to become a nurse, and he urged him to go to medical school. He told John David that it would be beneficial for his other son, John, who had also, by the way, developed schizophrenia, to know his, quote, less intelligent older brother, end quote. Number three. Russell Crowe won the BAFTA, the British version of the Academy Award, for Best Leading Actor for this film. And in his acceptance speech, he read a poem called Sanctify by an Irish poet, Patrick Kavanaugh. The BBC had warned all winners ahead of time not to let their speeches go on for too long, but I guess his nobility demanded or something like. He insisted on reading the poem, but the BBC edited it out of the BBC One broadcast an hour later. Crow was pissed, tracked down the show's director, Malcolm Jerry, at the post-awards dinner, pinned him against the wall in a storage room, and called him, let's just say that it rhymes with Mother Trucker. Crow then kicked three chairs across the room, stormed out, the BAFTA committee later apologized to the director. Nothing screams B-E-A-U-T-F-L more than a movie star's temper tantrum, wouldn't you say? Number two. According to Sylvia Nasser, Nash, quote, wished to show everyone that he was the master of this gorgeous young woman and that she was his slave, end quote. This is in reference to his wife, Alicia, played by Jennifer Connelly in the movie. He allegedly was physically aggressive with her at a mathematics department picnic and went so far as to place his foot on her neck. They divorced in 1963, which the film does not mention at all. 
Sylvia Nasa also goes on to say, in 2002, two days after the Oscars, she said to The Guardian, quote, Like the actor who plays him in the movie, Nash was a bad boy, but a great one, according to a fellow mathematician. One rival said he was obnoxious, immature, a brat. What redeemed him was a keen, logical, beautiful mind. End quote. And number one. According to Slate.com, Quote, Nash moved in with Alicia again in 1970, and it's true that her patience and concern played a critical role in his recovery from schizophrenia, but she referred to him as her border. NASA writes, and they lived essentially like two distantly related individuals under one roof, until he won the Nobel Prize when they renewed their relationship. In the movie, Nash uses his Nobel Prize acceptance speech to pay tribute to Alicia, but in reality, he wasn't even asked to give a lecture presumably because of his instability. He did, however, give a short speech at a small party in Princeton, end quote. And you may know that tragedy struck on May 23, 2015, when Nash and his wife Alicia were both killed in a car accident while taking a taxi on the New Jersey Turnpike. And now it's Moulin Rouge's turn to come swinging into the spotlight. So let's lighten the mood a little bit and take a look at this craziness. Number five. Interesting thing about the real-life Moulin Rouge. Back in the late 1800s, when electricity was still a new thing, it was the Moulin Rouge that was the very first building in Paris to have it. The windmill spun and there were electric light bulbs all over the building thanks to the scientific breakthrough of electricity. Number four. Nicole Kidman fractured a rib, falling down a flight of stairs, dancing in heels at three in the morning. Then she broke it, trying to fit into a corset. The scene at the beginning when Harold Zidler is telling her to get it on with a potential investor, and she says that she wants to be a real actress, she filmed that shot sitting in a wheelchair. Because of this tufa of an injury, she was unable to play the lead in the thriller Panic Room, and the role went to Jodie Foster. Number three. Suffering for the Art, take two. To play the dwarf. John Leguizamo had to walk on his knees in special leg braces with his feet and lower legs removed through special effects, which caused his legs to go numb. In 2005, so this would have been four years after the movie's release, he told TV Guide that his knees had recovered and that it was his lower back that was still compressed. He credited the filmmakers for getting him a great physical therapist who, he said, saved my spine. Number two. Casting could have been's. Both of the male leads in Brokeback Mountain, Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, were considered for the role of Christian. Ledger was ultimately deemed too young to play a love interest of Nicole Kidman, and Baz Luhrmann ultimately passed on Gyllenhaal as well. Luhrmann and Leo DiCaprio had remained pretty tight after 96's Romeo and Juliet. Leo auditioned for the role of Christian in Moulin Rouge. According to DiCaprio in a 2014 interview for Variety, quote, I have a pretty atrocious voice. But it was me and him and a piano player, and we tried to sing a song together. It didn't go too well. I think it was lean on me, and when I hit the high note, he just turned to me. I don't know if this conversation should continue. End quote. But apparently Obi-Wan blew Baz Luhrmann out of the water. Number one. I mentioned earlier how the Greek myth of Orpheus was the inspiration for the story of Moulin Rouge. Baz Luhrmann and his writing partner Craig Pierce had the Greek myth in mind as they plotted out Christian's attempts to save Satine from the Duke and the Moulin Rouge life itself. 
In the Greek myth, Orpheus fails to bring his beloved back from the dead after disobeying the gods by turning back to make sure she was still with him during their escape from the underworld. And in the film, Satine does indeed die without ever having her happily ever after with Christian, hence his brooding at the beginning of the film. One more thing. As promised, I have one fun fact for each of the other Best Picture nominees of 2001 as well. For In the Bedroom, the scene where Sissy Spacex slaps Marissa Tomei smartly across the face. Yeah, they did that about 15 times. For Gosford Pack, according to BottomShelfMovies.com, director Robert Altman intentionally included a lot of F-bombs in the final cut of the film in order to secure an R rating. Those of you outside the States, that means under 17, not admitted, without a responsible adult. Guess that disqualifies me. Anyway, Altman figured that kids were not the intended demographic, and he wanted adults to be able to go and see it without being burdened by dragging little Susie and Johnny along to the theater. And finally, Fellowship of the Ring. It was the first in a trilogy. You want to know more? Check out episode number 40. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous. The good, the bad, and the outrageous, all according to Oscars.org, the official site, so you know that this is all credible information. This was the 74th Annual Academy Awards and the first year that it was held in the Kodak Theater out in Hollywood. Whoopi Goldberg was the host. As the show began, she made her grand entrance Moulin Rouge style, sitting on her own big-ass swing that came down literally from an opening in the ceiling. She rode that thing all the way to the ground and then danced and shimmied her way onto the stage wearing a top hat and an elaborate sateen-like dress with feathers sticking out of both sides of her ass. Amazingly, they only got one reaction shot from Nicole Kidman. Even more amazing is that they actually got a shot of Russell Crowe smiling. This is also the year that the new category of Best Animated Feature was introduced, and the very first winner was the very first Shrek. Denzel became the first African-American to win a second acting Oscar, courtesy of his performance in Training Day, sprinting past Russell Crowe for A Beautiful Mind, and current nominee Will Smith for Ali. And Holly Berry became the first woman of color to win in the Best Leading Actress category, edging past Nicole Kidman for Moulin Rouge and Sissy Spacek for In the Bedroom. Barry got a standing ovation, and her speech started out pretty classy, acknowledging previous women of color who had been nominated over the years. But then it gets all kind of funky when the camera cuts to Renee Zellweger with her fingers spread out all over her face. I was there like, you okay, hon? But Holly Berry did say one thing that made me do a double take when she thanked the Academy for choosing her to be the vessel through which God's blessings may flow. I'm assuming she was not suggesting that God voted for her for an Oscar. But otherwise, a historic moment in showbiz history, and good on her. So let's swivel towards the final segment of the show, the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. Anyone and everyone is invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names if it makes anybody feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out, as well as a movie-related meme sent you away with a personalized message. Last time, the question asked about British actor Rafe Fiennes, who was a Best Leading Actor contender for The English Patient back in 1996. In the Harry Potter franchise, which character did he play? And the answer is... I don't know if I should say it. You're not supposed to say his name. He is so vile that they all call him he who must not be named. Oh, we can just call him Voldemort. And a hello and a congratulations to the following listeners who sent in their answers. Mary C., a longtime listener who is collecting these memes like nobody's business. Great to have you keep getting involved, Mary. 
There's also Chris from the podcast, The Movie Psycho. And I want to say this, his movie podcast is great. We met up at the beginning of January, and to get right down to it, he is guesting on the next episode that is going to take a look at 2006's Best Picture champ, The Departed. So be on the lookout, because that's coming your way very soon. In the meantime, go give this show a listen. That's The Movie Psycho. And Kim M. has her name on the list of trivia champs as well. She sent in her answer to a previous trivia question about Emma Watson, another Harry Potter alum. Like I say every time, it is never too late. It's just great having people listening, so thank you to all of you. And if any other listeners would like to get involved with the trivia, again, there is no time like the present. Join in. Good, harmless fun. And here is this week's trivia question. Director Ron Howard won the Oscar for directing Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Five years later, Howard directed what 2006 film starring Tom Hanks as Robert Langdon based on a Dan Brown novel? It also stars two other actors from this 2001 collection of Best Picture nominees, Ian McKellen, Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, and a Beautiful Mind co-star, Paul Bettany. Name this 2006 film. I'll give you a little hint. Howard and Hanks reunited for a follow-up called Angels and Demons four years later in 2009. Send your answers over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share in a beautiful mind, Moulin Rouge, anything about the 2001 Oscars, just hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. Now, like I said already, next time... Chris from the Movie Psycho will be joining me. It is going to be a great one. And that is it for episode 41. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I would, as always, be very grateful if you could rate or review this podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you use. It is a great help in terms of boosting the show's visibility. And I'm always open to any and all honest feedback and suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, and until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the sounds of this podcaster as a kid walking into a math classroom and being told to go up to the board in front of everyone and add two and two. <laughs> if I hate it, I hate it, I hate it! I hate it!